The morning of Wednesday, January 18th, we were still in Madrid. We got up early. We had to get ourselves out to the airport to catch our flight, which left at 10.30 in the morning. The airport in Madrid is quite convenient. It's connected by a metro line, by an airport bus, and of course, lots of taxis. And this had evolved into my plan. Originally, I figured we would take the metro, but you have to transfer at least once, if not twice, to do that. We already knew from experience that squeezing onto metros with our huge backpacks was not really the most pleasant experience. I mean, maybe for a couple stops or a few minutes, but this would have been like a 45-minute ride plus lots of walking, so did not seem very appealing. My plan for the past few days, thinking ahead to this morning, would be that we would go and catch that airport bus. It left from the Puerta de Atocha train station, where we had come in from Barcelona a couple of days earlier. And we knew that that was like a six euro taxi ride from where we were staying, our Airbnb apartment. Now that being said, where we were staying was on a fairly narrow, small street. Quite unlikely that you'd see taxis come by. I could call a taxi, but would we really be ready like within a few seconds? Because I remember when the taxi dropped us off the other day when we got here, there's nowhere for him to pull over. He just puts on his four-way flashers and stops right in the middle of the street. And we all jump out and hustling, grabbing our bags and everything to get over to the sidewalk as a line of cars. And then even a little electric local bus, city bus, starts queuing up behind us. I mean, it's the only option I think everybody recognizes in a place like Madrid or Lisbon and so on. The streets are old, they're narrow, they're like little alleys. So, you know, this is how it goes. We all have to take turns. But I didn't want a taxi sitting down there waiting for even four or five minutes if we were still kind of hustling and getting our stuff ready and getting out the door. So the logical thing seemed to be to walk down the hill to the main road not far from us at the uh, Embajadores uh, interchange. There's a big metro station there. It's a big roundabout kind of main intersection. And that was like a four or five minute walk downhill, so fairly easy to do. I knew that from there we could find a taxi for sure. It's a straight drive, I mean, two minutes maybe down the road to the train station to catch the airport bus. But the wild card here was, could we catch a taxi all the way to the airport? We had good success so far with taxis in Barcelona and Madrid. And I did read that taxis from the city center in Madrid to the airport are supposed to cost 30 euros. So here's the thing. If we take that airport bus to the airport, the tickets would be 5 euros each, which isn't too bad, but that's still 20 euros. Throw in 5 or 6 for a taxi to get to the train station to catch the airport bus. Well, obviously, you pay another 4 or 5 euros, whatever it is, to get a private taxi straight direct to the airport if that was possible. So... We walk down the hill, we get to the interchange, cross the street, so we're pointing in the right direction. Within a few seconds, the cab comes around the corner, and we hail her down and say, is there a standard rate to the airport? And she said, si, 30 euros. Perfect. No hesitation. We're taking it. Jump in. Throw our bags in the trunk, and we climb in the car, and we head on our way. It was still quite dark at 8 a.m., you know, even leaving the apartment, walking down the hill there, like the sun was just barely coming up. It was starting to get light, but it's amazing. Another reminder of just how late the day daylight begins in that part of, of Europe. My goal was to get to the airport by 9 o'clock. I had already pre-checked in, but of course we had to drop off our bags and I needed to figure out what the deal was with the batteries here in my computer because they seemed to imply no electronics were allowed in the cabin. So I figured 9 o'clock would be more than enough time to get that sorted out. We got to the airport with our taxi at 8.45. It was great. We had lots and lots of time. They were super friendly at the check-in. We took Air Europa, which is a bit of a hybrid. It's not quite the budget airlines of like Ryanair and EasyJet and so on. Uh, it's not a high-end airline either. It's a bit in between. 
I read decent reviews, and hey, this was only like an hour and 10-minute flight, so I wasn't too worried about that. But they were really, really friendly at the check-in. The woman there was at least trilingual, started in Spanish, quickly switched to English, and then she saw mostly Emily's last name, of course, Fauché. Elle dit, est-ce que vous parlez français? Ben oui. So we finish up the rest of the conversation in French. And of course, it was fine with the computer. I said, do I need to check it into my bag? She said, no, you should take it onto the cabin. So I don't know. I guess they're still getting their messages straight, but that was fine. The flight was short again, but it still felt like a decent distance. I looked it up later. It's 600 kilometers between Madrid and Lisbon. And as we're flying over the Spanish and then Portuguese countryside, I mean, you look down, it was a fairly clear day, so we could see a fair bit. You see just kind of rolling hills and kind of small mountains. There's the odd river and reservoir. It seems fairly sparsely populated, just the odd little village. And you start to get a sense of still just how big the countries are. So I spent some time on the plane studying Lisbon some more. It's one of those things, you know, when you're making these many stops over such a short period of time, it's like I kind of wanted to read up on Lisbon, but I had to figure out exactly where we were going to go in Barcelona first, and then especially in Madrid, and so it's kind of one thing at a time. I was glad to be able to focus on Lisbon at last and kind of reorient myself. I'd done a fair bit of research beforehand weeks ago, but it's been a while since I was really focused on Lisbon, and now we're going to be there in like you know, 30, 40 minutes kind of thing. So I want to know where we need to go, how we're going to get there, things to see, and how the day was shaping up. One of the advantages of flying west to Portugal, from Spain in our case, was that you gain an hour. Portugal is on the same time as the UK and Ireland, so one hour behind most of Western Europe or Central European time zone, and uh, five hours ahead of Eastern Time North America instead of the six hours in France and Spain. So that meant our flight left at 10.30 in the morning. We get to Lisbon at 10.40 in the morning. It was great. So we had a whole extra hour. As we arrived closer to the city, there were some clouds for sure hanging over, but they were moving quickly. You could tell the weather changes fast. And incredible views. I'm going to share some pictures of this as you fly right over the city in the mouth of the river, and you see the tower, the Bedem Tower at the edge of the waterfront out towards the river's mouth. You see the big suspension bridge, the hills of Sintra off in the distance, which now I can understand are really quite high. I thought it was kind of a modest hill, but when you see it, especially from the airplane, you can see how it really stands out over the valley where Lisbon itself sits. So we fly right over the city, and the airport is just a little bit northeast of the city center. As we found out later, walking around the city, I mean, airplanes are flying right overhead all the time. You can see them in that same route where they kind of circle to the south and then the west and then approach in to the runway in the right direction. So this is exactly the route that we took and a really, really neat introduction to Lisbon. The uh, place where we were staying was essentially a hostel, but we had a private room. It was near the Time Out Market, which is a little bit west of the city center waterfront, like really just a few hundred meters, not even a kilometer. The market itself is around the corner from a train station, also the end of the metro line. It's called the Caix du Sodre. So that was going to be our destination if we were going to take the metro, because I knew from there it would just be a few minutes' walk to the uh, hostel. It's an easy metro trip from the airport in Lisbon. Uh, You do generally need to take a couple lines to get to where you need to go, but still, it's very direct, and it's only €1.40 per person with the uh, local transit card. It's called Via Viajeng, which costs 50 cents each. In Paris, a similar card costs €2 each, so that was looking promising already. And it was maybe a 40-minute trip. Or another option would be to get a day pass for metros and trams and buses, 
which would cost six euros 90 cents per person, including the kids. There'd be no kids rate for that. So just under seven euros each, which would pay for itself after five trips. So including the airport one, we'd have another four. If it's certainly a great idea, if we make the most of it, another great benefit is that it was timed to 24 hours. So if we were to purchase that and start using it, let's say at 11.30 in the morning, we would still have time till 11.30 the next morning. It wouldn't just expire at midnight kind of thing. So that all sounded pretty interesting, but of course it comes back to the bags, not to mention some walking. But the bags, you know, are we going to squeeze on the metro yet again with commuters and so on, taking a chance that we'll have enough space? Plus, we need to change trains halfway. When you leave the airport, it's the, the first or last stop, depending how you look at it. So we knew we'd get on an empty train there, but then you're changing close to the center of the city, and, you know, you could be getting onto a really super busy train. So is this really something we want to do again? We could, therefore, take a taxi. Taxis, I knew, again, were quite affordable it should be even less than Madrid, say, it's a shorter distance, but I was expecting maybe 15, 17 euros for a private taxi to the area where we were going. It's called the Bica area in Lisbon. So that was still a possibility too. Maybe we should just take a taxi and then kind of go from there. Well, what would you do if you were in our shoes? Take the easy and convenient option, which was a taxi, arguably even less expensive. I mean, would we still get any metro tickets and passes if we did? If we did not, there would only be those 15 euros, let's say. If we got the four-day passes, then we're getting close to 28 euros. Okay, but as I say, we get a lot more for that if we're going to make the most of it. It was uh, shaping up to be a pretty nice day. Again, a few clouds, but uh, it was quite sunny. We walk out of the airport. There's palm trees. <laughs> that was a good sign. Before we went anywhere, we needed an emergency 5 euro croissant from a snack bar at the airport to uh, silence some complaints and flagging energy. So we took care of that first. And then we decided, look, let's go on the metro. Let's do that. We'll take a chance that it'll be fine. Because we had that extra time, because we had the extra hour, you know, everything goes well. We knew we could leave our bags at the hostel and then carry on. We'd have easily the whole afternoon to go exploring. And we knew that Lisbon was quite uh, compact. that You could see a fair bit. So that's what we did. We headed straight for the metro. When we got on the train, of course, it was empty, and that was fine. And when we changed trains, I think because it was middle, late morning, it wasn't all that busy. It was getting busy, but uh, we were okay. In the end, we were able to get on there with our bags and uh, find the way to go once we got to the Caiz do Sodre station there at the end. And then it was like not even a 10-minute walk over to our hostel. Where we checked in early, the room wasn't ready, but we could leave our bags. They are really, really nice, welcoming, and friendly. The place is called Lisbon Calling, and I kind of stumbled upon it on Booking.com, of all places. It's one of those places that as soon as you walk in, you just feel at home, and your first thought is, wow, I wish we could stay here longer, and not just the one night. I know already that if we're coming back through Lisbon at any point in this trip, if we need a place to stay, we'll certainly try to stay there again. It's a small place. It only has, well, three rooms in the building that we were in. They have another property around the corner, apparently. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite small. So intimate, I mean, there was a couple of other guests there, and it's nice to chat with some people, but this was hardly some big bustling hostel by any means. They had a nice kitchen towards the back of the main floor with uh, vaulted ceilings of brick, and there was a gas stove and a marble sink, and like, this is a fancy place, but it was quickly dawning on us that this kind of stuff was pretty generic. In Portugal, you really start to see the craftsmanship all over the place. Our room was nice and neat and tidy, overlooking the square, a church a bell tower right in front of our face, and a tram line down below. So it was 12 o'clock noon in the end as we set out to see the city, and this really felt like our first proper sightseeing 
of the trip so far. If you think back to it, you know, we arrived in Paris, we were super jet-lagged, exhausted, we slept for most of that first day, even the next day we slept in, so we didn't head out till kind of mid-afternoon. In Avignon, we got there late, we did a bit of sightseeing, but it's a small city, a small town, really. Barcelona, we got there late, and we were tired and everything, and I mean, by the time we went out to see a bit of the city, it was uh, something like 7 o'clock at night. And then in Madrid, well, once we got there, I remember we were keen to just kind of stay put and unpack our bags a bit and stop, you know, with the constant moving around and also get our bearings a bit there too. It was a little chilly and windy, I remember, so it wasn't quite as enthusiastic sightseeing right off the get-go in Madrid. But here in Lisbon, because the weather was so nice, because we had lots of time, we were well-rested, it was an easy flight, our, our bags were taken care of, all of this stuff, it just felt like, let's really go exploring and see the city. And we were excited to do it too. I mean, as I say, first impressions of Lisbon, this place is beautiful. You have a beautiful old feel everywhere you go. Artwork along the pavement and the buildings, all the buildings are like a work of art bright colors. There's marble everywhere, like everywhere. We go into the hostel and the main kind of main floor and the first set of stairs up to the next floor were solid marble. Again, the marble in the kitchen, like in the, around the kitchen actually, and, and the actual kitchen sink. I noticed that virtually every stair, set of stairs we're climbing, whether it's out of metro stations or later on along sidewalks and the tiles that are inlaid that create most of the sidewalks here and all the beautiful artwork, like most of it is limestone or marble. It's all polished and beautiful colors. It's amazing. I noticed right away how prevalent English was. You'd see signs and, of course, Portuguese written first, but right underneath, often in equal size and font, would be English. Be pretty rare to see anything else. There's certainly no Spanish. I, I did see French once or twice, but you can really see how you know English is the second language. And I don't know that people you know they'll study it as their other international functional language in school. We were in some pretty touristy places, so it wasn't surprising. But you really don't hesitate to order and and talk in English. I mean, people respond perfectly naturally as if it's their first language. We went over to the Time Out Market there to find something for lunch. Right away, I saw an octopus hot dog. That was interesting. I did not try it, but I did try a thick burger-type well, sandwich, really. It's called the Teddy Boy. Time Out Market is a touristy place for sure. It's a little overpriced, although, again, the prices were already getting better than Paris for sure and Barcelona and Madrid, too. Time Out Market is known as kind of the authentic foodies market, I guess you could say. They're basically food stalls in this big hall with seating in the middle, and the whole the entire hall is framed with various food stalls and everything from pizza to types of burgers and sandwiches, uh, lots of seafood for sure, some dessert places. Even in the middle of the seating area, there was a port wine bar. You could do samples of different types of port. There was another craft beer section. Of course, there's coffee, espresso, and so on. And all of this stuff is very high quality. They pride themselves on sourcing local ingredients and having good, authentic food. Designed for tourists, for sure. I think there's a lot of locals there, by the sounds of it. But the cruise ships come in and other big bus tours, and the place gets super, super busy. So we knew it was touristy, but we also knew the quality would be there, and we were happy to try it out. The uh, timeout market is originally the Mercado del Ribera, which still exists, there's kind of another section where they sell fruits and vegetables, and for sure a lot of locals will go there. It's all part of this one big market building type complex. From there we walked over towards the center of the city in the waterfront, which has a really nice path, again, the cobblestone type tile sidewalks and boardwalks. You're right along the side of the river, 
And as you get around the corner at last, you see this massive square, the Praça de Comercio, and the big arch that's off to one side of it in the middle, the Arco da Rua Augusta. It's a gateway to the city. It was a far more open waterfront than I had expected or realized. At least right in the center there, there's no real trace of kind of industrial activity or your typical loading docks or anything like that. It's been made quite open and pedestrian friendly. And you really get those views again. You can see all the way down to the mouth of the river across to the other side. The ferry boats are coming back and forth. There's even a little tiny sections of beach, like a couple hundred feet wide, but you can go down and play on the beach if you want. We went down to this little platform that was right at the edge of the water, like down a few steps, and now we're a few inches above the water. The water was quite calm. It wasn't that windy. But when one of the ferry boats came by, we didn't realize at first until a few seconds later, as the wake from the boat started to reach these steps, we were just about to take a picture, and suddenly we hear shrieking, and a whole bunch of people are running back, and like, we can see this wave is about to engulf us. Like, it, we wouldn't have been swept away, but we would have got very, very wet if we had stayed there another five seconds. <laughs> so we all scramble back up the steps, quite a few steps, as these waves start crashing over this uh, landing. As you start to explore the streets, the center of the city especially, you see the famous street art. The streets really are art designs in stone. They call it calzada. Everything you see is handmade, it's hand inlaid. So these pieces of marble or limestone, perhaps other stone, they're cut by hand, they're cut to make certain designs, and then they're inlaid on top of kind of a gravel or mortar type concrete mix to keep them in place, although they're infamous for both crumbling and breaking up over time and also being very slippery. Lisbon is a place where it rains frequently, especially in the winter, so I was quite conscious of that, you know, that we all had to be quite careful, you no know, running and really be careful, even with our good shoes, that we weren't going to slip and fall here because these things are like slippery marble. Later on over the day and since, I've realized that these street designs, this calzada, is not just some touristy thing that's preserved in a couple little sections. It's all over the city. It's all over the city. Like Rome and Peterborough, Lisbon is one of the cities with the seven hills, which is true. It's very true. It's a very hilly city which partly explains the famous trams and also the elevators that take people to the different levels of the city. They're actually part of the public transport infrastructure. And everything as you walk around, you know, it feels like it's many, many hundreds of years old. It's easy to forget everything there was all destroyed in 1755 in the massive earthquake and the tsunami that followed. It virtually leveled the city. And so the center of the city especially was rebuilt in a bit of a grid system, a grid format. So you have these long, narrow streets, and they're interspersed by shorter little blocks of cross streets. So, I mean, it's old, but we're not talking like 14th, 15th century. Most of these buildings and the streets are roughly 250 years old. And they're narrow streets still, where buses and everything else just kind of squeeze through, often just with inches to spare. So we had our transit pass. We did buy the 24-hour pass, of course. Remember, we needed five trips, including the one from the airport, to make it worthwhile. So we'd spent one. We need to do four more trips to now get our money's worth. <laughs> in theory, this would be easy because there's lots of options. There's trams all over the place. There are the public elevators. You could always take a bus. And, of course, the metro if you need to hop to other places too. So I figured, well, we'll surely make this work. At first, I was a little uncertain because I saw a lot of tram lines in the road, but I didn't see any trams coming through over the first like hour or two. I guess we were just in the wrong place the wrong time. We did go to the Santa Justa elevator pretty quickly. 
That's the most famous one. You often see it in the pictures and postcards and stuff. It's this big black elevator that goes up a few stories and kind of towers over the Rua Augusta, the main street there, the main pedestrian street, and takes you up to a higher level. So because it's so ornate and famous, it's always very popular. Sure enough, there was a line. We were able to get in within about 15 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes. I mean, they only take, I don't know, maybe eight, 10 people at a time, if that. And a lot of the people don't have a pass. They actually have to buy the tickets as they get on board from the attendants. So this is part of why it takes so long, because half the people, at least getting on, they got to buy their tickets, get out the cash, get their change and all the rest. So that's part of it. All of that for like a 10 second ride. <laughs> but it is pretty neat. It's this old, old elevator with uh, wood paneling inside and the gates that slide across and kind of wrought iron structure all around you. And you go up to the top, there's two levels. There's the initial level when you step out of the elevator, and you can look down now to where you just were over the city streets there. There's usually another higher observation deck above that, basically on the roof. Unfortunately, it was closed. We'll hopefully be able to come back there another day. But uh, yeah, it is pretty neat. I mean, it's very touristy these days, but it is pretty neat to see. And as I say, it's included in that Metro Pass. So we had that one at least. The next stop was kind of around the corner. Now we're at the top of one of these hills, so we're at fairly level ground and higher above the city. And there's another one of these, what they call it, the elevadors, but they're basically like a funicular that go up and down the side of a hill. There are three of these in the city as well. The closest one to where we were was called the Elevador da Gloria, about a five-minute walk away. When we got there, though, we could see these two yellow trams basically parked halfway down the hill. They weren't moving. They were basically stuck in one place. It was pretty clear that the thing was closed. There wasn't any information. It just nothing happening. Again, we were next to a tram line in the street, a regular tram. I had been like half an hour. I hadn't seen anything. So I was starting to wonder, was this Metro Pass really worthwhile? But finally, we saw one of these electric trams come rumbling around the corner, heading down the hill. So in Lisbon, there's a small network of these electric trams. These, again, the ones that show up in the postcards and stuff. They rumble past buildings and tight little alleyways. And these trams that are at least 100 years old, the operator has the gears and the levers and so on as they're constantly slowing down and darting around these tight little corners. It's all on rails, of course, but it's really neat. It's, I mean, again, it sounds very cliche, touristy, but it really is something that you got to do in Lisbon. We saw one of them, the 24E, came around the hill. And we hopped on our first tram ride. We went down the hill a little bit the opposite direction to another square where there's a bit of a tram interchange. The one we were really looking for was the 28E. This is a famous one that really goes through a whole bunch of alleys and up and down the hills and around these tight corners. So how does this thing fit through? It's infamous for understandably being very busy. These things are quite small. I mean, when they're packed full, they might hold maybe 20, 25 people at the most. And the tourists, especially the high tourist season, you can barely get a spot. You almost have to go to the very start of the line, which is like another couple kilometers away, just to get a spot. By the time usually the tram gets to where we were, close to the city center, you're not going to get a, a spot. The first one came by and it was too full. Fortunately, another one followed along pretty quickly and it was almost empty. So we got on board and we even got a seat. And now we start to rumble through the old city towards the opposite side where there's the really, really steep hill with the castle on top. And the tram kind of rumbles around behind that to the far side. This thing is like a fairground ride. All on rails, it darts to the left and darts to the right. You can reach out the window and touch buildings sometimes as you're going through. It makes quite a bit of noise with the electricity switching on and off as it powers through. And as we're sitting there, we realize most of the people on this tram right now are locals. They're carrying their shopping, their groceries. They're speaking Portuguese. This is not just some touristy cliche. This is a real practical means of getting across town. 
As we got towards the end of the 28E line, we were on it for a good 15, 20 minutes, I think at least. And then we're close to a metro station. So, of course, we use our pass. We go back in towards like the center of town on the metro to the Rossio station. And that's close to the Restadores Square, where there's a lot of cafes, restaurants, and so on. We were in search of a snack and our first pastel. This is the custard-like tart that is basically a pastry. It kind of looks like a butter tart. It's about the same size. It's a hot, dry pastry filled with custard that's quite warm and sprinkled with cinnamon and has kind of a thin film of skin on top, you know, like pudding. These things are everywhere, all throughout the city. They're easy to find. Sometimes they can be a bit overpriced. Sometimes they're like one euro fifty. You can get them for 75 cents or so. We found a nice spot where they make them and a few other things. It's just a constant procession of these things coming out of the oven in these big, big trays, 25, 30 at a time. People come in, they have a quick coffee, espresso, and they'll grab one of these tarts and have a little snack. You can find a table and then you can add some cinnamon on top of it too if you want. So we liked it. It was much, much crunchier than I expected, especially when it's freshly baked like that. It was sweet, but it wasn't sickly sweet. It was just kind of tempting, like, well, maybe I could have another one. <laughs> but uh, we don't want to overdo it here. And we'll be here long enough that we'll have a few, I'm sure. So now it was back to our elevadors. Around the corner from this place was the next one. It was called the Lavra. This is the east side of the Restadores Square. It goes up to the eastern, one of the eastern hills of the city center. And again, it was the same basic design. It was these old trams, the 100-something years old. I think they, they opened most of these things in the system around the year 1900, 1905. And a lot of the trams still date from that era. It's a bit of a counterbalance system. So when there's one at the very top of the hill, there's one at the bottom on a single track. And in the middle, this is the case in all three of these elevadores, in the middle, there's a passing lane. So the track splits into two. And, of course, it's all time so that as the trams pass, they, they dart over to these passing lanes and they go right past each other and then carry on back onto the single lane and, and go the rest of the way. What's amazing is, like, people live along these hills. So you go on this tram and there's somebody walking down. I even saw a car once able to squeeze in and get into their parking space. And people just used to, same with the 28 tram there, especially, like, you know, people are used to just walking alongside, darting in and out. Everything's very compact here and just squeezes in together. So we went up and down the Lavra. When we're at the bottom again, we're back to the square. And on the opposite side of that is the Gloria Elevador, the one we tried to see first. So we kind of crossed our fingers. Maybe now it's working. At this point, it was about 5.30, I think, later in the day. So we go over to check it out. And yes, fortunately, it was working. The trams were rumbling up and down the hill. The timing was great because one was there about ready to go as soon as we showed up. And it took us right back up to the top of that hill which is around the corner from the top of the Santa Justa elevator. It's all fairly close together. The hills are so steep, the trams are built essentially on an incline so that the floor is level, but it's at an angle to the incline of the hill. So you just step on board and sit down and it's all flat floor, but it's like the tram is sticking out the side of the hill as it's going up and down. At the top of the hill, there's another beautiful park. It's the Miraduro de San Pedro de Alcantara. It's like a terrace with two levels that looks down over the big square down below, the Restadori Square, and then a lot bit further past that is the Rocio Square, and eventually way down you see the arch in the distance in the river. The lights were coming on in the city now. It wasn't too busy. The kids had lots of room, lots of room to run around. They made the most of that. A great way to cap off the evening. At this point, the kids were excited to recount all of the forms of transportation we took today. We started off with a taxi, then an airplane, <laughs> then the metro, subway, 
and then the elevator, the black elevator, Santa Justa. Then we took a couple electric trams, another metro, then the two elevadores up the sides of the hill. And to get back to our hostel, actually uh, just a few blocks away from it, we took just a regular city bus. Now at that point, we were thinking we may still have time to cap off the final piece of the puzzle, which was the third and final elevador, the Bica. And this one was a 20-second walk from our hostel. We knew we could get to the top of it, at the top of the hill, take the elevador down to the bottom, and we'd be almost right next door to the door into our place. So I had a pretty good sense of where to go and how to get there. As you're walking along these little alleys, we could see the track straight ahead, and then a tram, one of these elevadors, goes right past. Most of them are painted yellow, so they're really easy to spot. So we emerged halfway up the hill. It was neat to be so close to it, but I said, look, we've got a couple options here. We can walk all the way up to the top of the hill and ride it back down. We could walk to the bottom of the hill, ride to the top, ride it back down. But are you guys hungry? <laughs> I think it's time for dinner. So here's the thing. Thanks to our 24-hour pass, we knew we could come back the next morning and the place was, uh, you know, less than a minute walk away from our door. So we could definitely have time to catch the Bica Elevador the next morning. And that, of course, is what we did. We got some kebabs for dinner and I went to the little corner store around the corner, like a Depanar. The most common beer, I guess the most popular, at least for the common beers you see in Portugal, is the Superbock. It's certainly not the only one. There's other local and Portuguese beers. Uh, Sagresh is another one I've seen, and there's a few others. There's a, a growing crap brewery scene too, but the most common one is Superbach. I got a one-liter bottle for two euros fifty, and it's a good beer. It's a nice, refreshing lager. So that was our day. It was our best day of this trip by far. Thoroughly enjoyable. Historic Lisbon is compact, it's easy to explore, transit is affordable, it's convenient, and it's even fun. I mean, it's a great way to entertain the kids and ourselves. The historic city feels like a well-loved and well-used work of art. There's statues, there's monuments, squares, churches, grand buildings all over the place, almost every corner. I'll need to really learn a lot more about them. And it's cheaper, for sure, in France and Spain, I mean, generally speaking. Like, as I say, those pastels should be less than one euro each. I saw lots of signs for happy hour beer for one euro for a pint of beer. A bottle of wine, good bottle of wine, two or three euros. And even at the time out there for lunch, I mean, I got this big sandwich that was uh, roughly 12 euros. That was fairly expensive, but I mean, in France, that would cost seven or eight euros more. It would easily be 20 euros for something like that. So we can start to see the differences here already. It's a very nice vibe in Lisbon. It's relaxed and cool. It's busy, but it's not too hustling and bustling. You see people wander through their daily tasks. There's kind of a confidence here, you know, like a maybe a new and growing confidence. There's a character to it. I, I, I'm guessing because people know that it's more and more of a hip destination. It's not quite over-touristy, over-trendy and gentrified and so on. There's quite a bit of graffiti everywhere too, in fact. So I'm hoping I get a sense that we are still here at the cusp or kind of before it really takes off and inevitably probably becomes a lot more expensive and gentrified in the years to come. There's something unique about Lisbon already. I can feel it. This, maybe this is the mix of the artwork you see everywhere, the functional artwork, like it's right in the city sidewalks. It's not just on the sides of buildings. Like it's very functional. They decorate the city. It's the, the setting, you know, right next to the river. It's a big, wide river, and the mouth of the river and the ocean is not too far away. You can see it. Maybe it's the urban planning post-earthquake that it's, I suppose, kind of modern compared to a lot of places in Europe. We know that it could, maybe should have been a much older city. You know, this was a booming, bustling place 
in the late 1500s, in the early 1600s, when they were starting to build a lot of these big buildings and palaces and so on, and most of that got destroyed. So in the European context, I think that gives a little bit of a newer feel to otherwise very historic city. And maybe it's that knowledge, the reminders of the powerful, influential history of Portugal, which largely was launched here on these docks in Lisbon as they set out to explore the world. It's a very mixed history, for sure, but it certainly is influential. I think the waterfront makes a huge difference, you know, just knowing that it's there. You catch those breezes off the water from time to time. The ocean is reflected in the clouds. The weather can change in five minutes and then change back, you know. We got some light showers a couple times for sure as we were walking around, but we could see the blue sky coming in behind the dark clouds, so it all changes very fast. No one worries about the rain, it'll pass. I think the neatest thing for me was it was particularly profound standing at the waterfront and picturing the fleet of Vasco da Gama and subsequent Portuguese armadas sailing out down the river to disappear and change history. I mean, it all happened right there. You remove the bridge, the modern bridge, and the towers, the ships, and the ferries, and the industry. Imagine what it looked like 500 years ago. The edge of the known world was within eyesight, just down that river. Incredible. We really purposefully planned this extra day, you could say, in Lisbon. Instead of trying to go straight to our Airbnb, we knew it would be easier to stay in the city center for a night. We knew with the timing we'd get there kind of late morning. Hopefully the weather then would be good, and in the end it was, so that we could have this day to see the city, the city center, the old city, and get a good sense of it, to try to start to understand it, knowing now, in turn, we're here for the next four weeks. So we can hop on the train and go into the city. Some things we've already seen and done. Uh, other things we can still go and explore. We don't have to pack it all into one or two days. It's such a fortunate way to travel. I love how images and ideas of sites and places start to lock into place like a jigsaw once you see them in person. I'm thinking about the plaza, the waterfront plaza, the Plaza de Comercio, the arch, the Rua de Augusta that goes behind it, and the elevator tower, the uh, Santa Justa. And I kind of had a sense of where all these things were. Now I've seen it, I've walked around, I've explored, I've even been on them, and it all just makes sense. And suddenly it's like a fog lifts from the city and you know where to go, you know where things are, and you can appreciate it that much more. I love that feeling, and it's nice to have it now here in Lisbon. So, tomorrow, we are heading out to our Airbnb. It's roughly a 30-minute train ride from the city center. That should be a pretty straightforward thing to figure out. And then a short walk from the train station there to the actual apartment. We know we'll be three, I believe, uh, let's say less than 10 minutes train ride from Sintra, the actual town of Sintra, and the hills and the palaces and everything there. So that's going to be another thing in our backyard we'll be checking out. But for now, for sure, we're really looking forward to finally settling in, unpacking our bags, seeing what the apartment there will be like, uh, exploring the area, feeling like locals. You know, where's the local grocery store, the bakery, what kind of supplies might we need? We're going to look into getting SIM cards for at least some data for our cell phones, which would be handy instead of always looking for Wi-Fi. So things like that. It's part of the changing nature of this trip here. It's crazy. You know, it's been, what, eight days? <laughs> we lose track. Eight days, I think, since we left Canada and got to Paris. It already seems like a long time ago. All of the ground that we've covered, the things that we've done, and it's already the end of that first phase of this trip. So I'm going to sign off now and check in with you some more tomorrow from our new home in Rinchoa. Thanks very much as always for listening in. We'll talk to you soon.